bring in Dr. Peter Littleback to uh, speak to us tonight, so we're very blessed to have him come. This is the James Montgomery Boyce Lectures. How many of y'all know Dr. Boyce, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce? Okay. Well, the rest of you need to get to know him. And uh, he has a lot of great books, and he was just a, a great preacher at 10th Pres, I think, in Philadelphia for many years. And this series, lecture series, is in his honor. He is now with the Lord. Uh, he died uh, of brain cancer relatively young, in his 50s, was it? Some, something like that. But um, So we're very uh, thankful to be here tonight. And again, we appreciate the George Whitch- Whitfield Society and all they've done to, to bring in the speaker and host this every year. So we're glad that you're here. Why don't we uh, begin with a word of prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge You tonight and worship You tonight and praise Your holy name, Father, for sending Your Son to die on the cross and bear the penalty of our sins that we who deserve to be judged in hell forever can find the sweetness of Your grace through the blood of Jesus. And so, Father, we just want to praise You and thank You for calling us out of darkness into Your light, out of our spiritual death into Your life. And we want to just thank You, Lord, for all that You've done to save us. And Lord, we want to thank You for this meeting tonight. Again, we want to thank You for all the board members of the Whitfield Society and their love and commitment to spread the Word of God and to minister grace to others in need. And we pray that you'll bless them and continue to multiply and further their work for the glory of your name. And Lord, we also thank you for Dr. Littleback. We thank you for his great ministry at the Westminster Theological Seminary. Lord, continue to sustain him and uphold him. Give him grace for the many responsibilities that he has at the seminary. And use him mightily to continue to train up young men to go forth and lift up high the name of Jesus Christ. Bless his ministry to us tonight and give us ears to hear that we might be blessed through the ministry of your word. So again, Father, we want to dedicate this evening to you. We want to give you praise and glory and ask for your blessings in all that we do in our singing and praying and the preaching that will come. Lord, may all things be done for your honor and for the glory of your great and mighty and holy name. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening, my name is Jeff Brown, visiting from Believer's Chapel in Dallas, Texas. We are so glad to be with you all tonight. I consider Northwest Bible a sister church, and not only in the blood of Jesus Christ, but also looking at your doctrine and those books in back. So I can't guarantee I may not steal one or two as I head back to Texas tomorrow. Um, one thing I love about the George Whitfield Society, and as I come as a, as a representative tonight, uh, just to M, uh, MC is... I love the fact that there are churches all over Oklahoma City that are part of this society. It really reminds me of what George Whitfield did in the 1700s in bringing different 
denominations together under the banner of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you a little bit about the society before we get started. Uh, if you're new to this concept, it's, uh, it's a society that started in 1995, just a bunch of Oklahoma City businessmen uh, with the idea of really uh, the ministry being about Jesus Christ. And yet, we call it the George Whitfield Society because he lived out his love for Christ in two specific ways. One materially and the other spiritually. Um, his motto of life was poor, yet making others rich. I'll give you a couple of examples of that. Materially, he began a widow's home. He also began an orphanage that's still in existence in Savannah, Georgia. He supported it his entire life. Listen to what he had to say. He was quoted as saying, We say, as Christians, that faith in Christ, love of God, being born again, are of infinite more worth. Yet, you cannot be true Christians without having charity to your fellow creatures. Isn't that what Jesus says? By this they will know you are my disciples, by your love for one another. He got that. Um, So he would go out of his way to help others, and he would set up uh, basically places where people could give that would send out to the orphans and widows and the poor. So he not only helped people materially, but also spiritually, as you probably know, he proclaimed the Bible. Uh, He was loved by many. He was hated by many, just because we know the gospel is offensive. He wasn't offensive himself, but his message was. And so I'll tell you, several times crowds chased him uh, one day, he was pelted by, and this is his own quote, with continual showers of stones, walnuts, dirt, a cat, <laughs> and also a dead dog. Uh, after giving the gospel, he would conclude by saying something to this effect, and this I quote, How do you know, but this may be the last opportunity God will favor you with? How do you know, but ere midnight, your soul must launch into eternity? You see, one thing he did so well is he preached an unadulterated gospel, and yet he wouldn't back down regarding the sovereignty of God in your own salvation as well. Well, the George Whitfield Society seeks to do the same thing materially and spiritually. I know I've been a beneficiary of it in the past. Um, Something we do in this is we help the poor, the widows, orphans, even pastors, uh, seminary students by giving theological books and financial gifts. Um, I know when we adopted our uh, new, she wasn't a newborn, she was an abused toddler, and we just didn't have the money to get done with what we needed to do in order for the adoption to be complete. And uh, Mike Black gave me a call and said, hey, Whitfield Society, along with some others, have come together, pooled the resources, and we've got you a car. And we had no car of good repute that we could drive around to go pick up our adopted daughter. So... Uh, God was good. He always is. Spiritually, uh, this society proclaims the Bible near and far, supports missionaries giving the gospel as far as away as the Middle East, teaches a men's Bible study on Friday mornings at 6.30 a.m. I encourage you men to be a part of it. If you haven't, uh, please do. It'll be worth your time. And finally, offering annual conferences free of charge, just like this one. Uh, that's what we want to do. Is The idea is making others rich, rich in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Alan already mentioned this. I want to thank, definitely thank Northwest Bible Church for allowing us to have uh, the society meeting here in the James Montgomery Boyce Lecture Series. Tonight, we do have the privilege of hearing from our speaker, Dr. Peter Lilback, president of the Westminster Theological Seminary, 
professor of historical theology and church history. In addition to his positions at Westminster, he is also the president of the Providence Forum. He received his Ph.D. from Westminster, a Master of Theology from Dallas Theological Seminary, and a Bachelor of Arts from Cedarville University in Ohio. He has one wife, two daughters, and three grandchildren. He's the author of the best-selling book, George Washington's Sacred Fire, and several other books you will note on your bulletin tonight. Please join me in welcoming Peter Loback today. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you for being Wow. Uh, thank you so much for the joy of being back with you here in Oklahoma City. I was glad I got here yesterday, so I see you don't always have Philadelphia weather down here. A little bit cold, and this is, it feels pretty normal to me today, actually. Uh, it's an honor to be back and to share with you this evening on the theme of the Philadelphia Principle, the Christian Origins of Religious Liberty. As I do this, I come with great gratitude in my heart for the George Whitfield Society that has been a faithful uh, ministry in so many lives, and it's been an honor to be part of their work. As uh, we begin, the first thing I want you to think about is uh, we live in a day where, as Americans, we are generally aware of what we call our First Amendment privileges. We know the first of the many privileges we have as an American are captured in that First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or of prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Those words give to us unparalleled freedoms. Philip Schaff, uh, the great church historian, once said it this way, It is the first time in the history of any country when the First Amendment was adopted or a country renounced all right to control the religion of its people. This is an experiment that had never been done before. Now this has been something that has become part of what seems to be the universal recognition of human beings. We know the United Nations has the Universal Charter of Human Rights. And one of the things it suggests is that every human being should have the right of religious liberty, the freedom of conscience. This First Amendment seems to be something that we know so well, but there are many indications that there are those that want to destroy it and tear it down. But before we begin to think about some of the challenges and the dangers and the biblical basis for this idea, I want to tell you a few stories as to how we got our First Amendment. As I think about this, I want us to take a moment and think about the colonial era of America. There were two brothers by the name of uh, Peter and Frederick Muhlenberg. Uh, there was a missionary sent from Germany. His name was Melchior, Henry Melchior Muhlenberg. He was the Lutheran church from the Pietist tradition. Uh, there was the missionary sent to the colonies, especially Pennsylvania, to establish the Lutheran church in the New World. He had two sons. And he sent them back to Halle, Germany, so they would get a seminary education. They were essentially Lutheran missionaries. They come back to America, one in Virginia and one up in New York. The one in Virginia actually got to know George Washington. He would fox hunt with him from time to time. And uh, he is the one, perhaps you know if you've heard about the famous black-robed regiment. 
He was a man on a particular Sunday who was preaching in his preaching robe. And he was preaching on Ecclesiastes 3.1 and said there's a time for war and a time for peace. And at the end of his sermon, having said this is a time for war, a time to defend the dearest liberties of our nation, he opens up his preaching robe and there's the uniform of a continental officer. And he calls on the drums that are in the church to be beaten and for all the men to stand up and march off with him to war. And often think about it, ladies, you finally got your husband to church on Sunday and off they go for, who knows, eight years of war if they ever come back. Well, that literally happened. The group of people that left Virginia end up at Valley Forge, only about seven or eight miles from my house where I live in Pennsylvania. And they became the Muhlenberg Brigade. Now, the story of his commitment to the American cause got to his brother, of course, who was now in an Anglican church. The Lutherans and Anglicans have always been rather close in terms of their liturgy and style. So he was ministering in an Anglican church. And his brother, Frederick, was furious. He said, how is it possible that you've been trained in the gospel and you've abandoned your gospel calling to go out and take up arms of all the most foolish things you could do. These are strong words. And then one day, Frederick in New York had an epiphany. The British came to town and burned down his church. Why? Because the churches were viewed as the places where liberty and the ideas of human dignity and freedom were being upheld. Without a church... Realizing that this was a serious time, he reconsidered all that he had done. And he said, what is my calling? He got involved in the process of defending the colonies and their consciences. He ends up being elected to Congress. And on the wonderful beginning of the first Congress under the Constitution, because he's a very educated man, this is now... The former one ridiculing his brother for being a military officer is now elected to Congress. He becomes the Speaker of the House. And guess what he gets to do? The Bill of Rights are passed. And you know whose signature is on it for the House of Representatives? A minister of the Gospel named Frederick Muhlenberg. One who thought it is foolish to get involved in the issues of day-to-day life in terms of Liberty is actually the one that protects my right right here tonight to preach to you. The gift of the First Amendment is a gift of people of faith. Now the story goes deeper than that, and we're going to talk about it, but let's talk a moment about some of the challenges that are taking away our free exercise of religion. There's so many that we could think about. I had the opportunity to speak in St. Louis just about a month ago. And there is a football coach from Oregon by the name of Coach Kennedy. He was wonderfully converted. And uh, he was uh, a Marine retiree. And he was invited to come and coach the local football team. A wonderful leader of uh, young men, helping them to begin to shape their lives to serve. And as he was wrestling with this whole process of what should he do, He said, Lord, as a new Christian, I'm going to give every game to you. I'm not going to impose my values on anybody. 
But what he did at the end of every game is that when it was done, he would go out to the 50-yard line and just kneel down in the middle of the field. And he would give thanks to God for the privilege of serving. That was just his quiet activity. Well, you know what? People noticed that game after game. And before long, his teammates or his team started to come and they would join him in prayer. And as that happened, other teams, even arch rivals would watch it and they would come over and they would bow down and pray. And pretty soon, there were stadium students filling it up. Just come, And he didn't ask anybody to do it. It was just his custom. And as the case goes, a letter was sent to the school board and to a legal organization. So isn't it a wonderful thing that they're having organized prayer after football games on public property? And of course, a legal suit has come. They said, you have to stop. And he said, why do I have to stop? Because you're making people pray on public property. It's wrong. And he said, I'm not making anybody pray. I haven't asked anybody to do this. I'm just doing it. And so a lawsuit, it's gone all the way to the Supreme Court. He lost his job. He's in the middle of it. What did he do? He just simply exercised his right to pray. And one of the things he determined that he would wait till all the students had left before he did it, but it wasn't enough. Simply because he was in the office of a football coach, of a public school, his rights to pray were stripped from him. I thought we were protected for the free exercise of religion. We can think about this whole process. Military chaplains are being told they cannot pray in the name of Jesus. Supreme Court justice nominees are asked about their religious tenets and said, well, maybe the dogma is too strong in you to be able to serve. We can think about high school teachers being fired simply for pointing out that in the Declaration of Independence there are four references to deity and asking the students to know those in our founding document. That was seen as an establishment of religion. It's ridiculous. Bibles being distributed in schools and students being taken to the principal's office and expelled for simply sharing their Bibles as a gift of their own without any other coercion than their own. There are people who believe that abortion is wrong and they are being forced to participate in medical procedures. This has been part of the struggle. We realize that the process doesn't stop. In Massachusetts, several years ago, 15 years ago, Remember that the first state to legalize same-sex marriage was very clearly articulated. Religious liberty is now secondary to sexual liberty. Religious liberty is declining. The Muslim assaults on the world stage against uh, other religious traditions, we can still see that image of people lined up before they were beheaded simply because they had a different religion than their Muslim leaders. We can think about Mrs. Pence the vice president's wife, being ridiculed on national news simply for being a teacher at a Christian school. She was shamed publicly for doing what all of us would say is a wonderful thing, but no, it's wrong. We know about the case of the mayor of Houston, a transgender lesbian leader in the front of uh, the whole state saying, I'm going to require every minister to turn in their sermons so I can review them and determine if they are filled with hate speech. Religious liberty is on the line. 
There are stories of Christians being involved. We're going to tell more about it in a moment. We can see it being eroded. But the basic thing I want to destroy as an idea in your mind tonight, I want to rebuild the idea of religious liberty and its importance. But there's something I want to dispel from you. And that this idea is not the product of the secular enlightenment movement that sought to destroy Christianity in the post-Reformation era. You'll hear scholars tell you all the time, Christians have always created religious wars. They're always in the middle of conflict. And it finally took people that were not religious to bring about a new way where religious principles were not causing conflict, but we respected the conscience of others. Non-Christianity rescued us from Christian hatred. This would be a common way of expounding where we are facing things. And so, what I would like to do in my remaining moments before we turn to the Scriptures is to give you a little bit more of the history on how did that First Amendment actually get on the table for Reverend Frederick Muhlenberg to sign, the minister that signed that into the law of the United States. Well, the great change of the persecution that was part of Western tradition goes back to the name of two great ministers in America. The first is Roger Williams, and the second is William Penn. Now, you'll remember that when Constantine became a Christian, This is going all the way back to the ancient church in the 300s. Constantine was converted to Christianity. He was the Roman emperor. And you know what he did? He declared that everyone would be a Christian in the Roman Empire. And he used the sword to establish Christianity as the legal religion. That was one of the most glorious and most painful moments in the history of the church. Christianity is now established. But we also see that persecution of government power comes along with it. Persecuting people because of their religious viewpoints will give all sorts of horrendous suffering, such as the Inquisition, but also Protestants even engaging in persecuting others. It was in a small little place called Rhode Island that a Reformed Baptist minister, someone who would probably be very comfortable in the theology of this church, Alan. Someone who believes in the sovereignty of God. He said we need to have a place where we have the freedom of conscience protected in spite of the differences. And so he established the first experiment. Rhode Island was the first place. But there was another person also trained in Reformed theology by the name of William Penn. He will become a Quaker minister. But this is the story that is critical for us to understand because we are going to hear then from him about the Philadelphia principle, the Philadelphia story. Now, what happens with William Penn is basically this. He is converted to the Quaker faith, having been trained in the Anglican and Reformed tradition. You know, the Quakers, when they worship, There is no sermon. You never hear a bad sermon in a Quaker meeting. Did you know that? You can't fall asleep in a Quaker sermon. They don't have sermons. You might fall asleep in Quaker prayer meetings. The preaching goes on the street corner in the old days. 
And William Penn is converted by a Quaker preacher. And it was illegal to be a street preacher in those days. And so when William Penn became a preacher uh, in the Quaker tradition, he eventually is not only kicked out of his father's house, Admiral Penn, but he ends up in the Tower of London. You know, the Tower of London is a place where you might end up having your head removed from your shoulders. It's the place where the upper crust are put in jail because of their alleged crimes. And while Penn is in this jailed condition, he begins to meditate. And he wonders, what would the world be like if there was a place where people had their religious liberties protected in spite of all of their different convictions, and they could all function together in a common civil society. The idea was believed to be a utopian vision. It could never happen. Well, one of the great books that William Penn wrote was called The Great Case of Conscience. And on the front of it, he put the reference Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12. Now, you may not know that reference, but you know what it says. It's called the golden rule. As you want people to do unto you, you do unto others. What William Penn basically said, I don't want to be put in jail because of my convictions. So I don't think I would ever put anyone in jail because of their religious convictions. The great contribution of William Penn was applying the golden rule to the public square. Now, how in the world did that come about? Well, it just so happened that Admiral Penn had a vast uh, estate debt that this king, Charles I and Charles II, owed to him. And at the end of this period of time, William Penn becomes the heir from his father's estate when he dies. They had been estranged, they're reconciled at the end. And William Penn goes to Charles II, the king of England, and says, please don't pay me in cash. Pay me in land. 3,000 miles from here across the ocean, there's a vast tract of land that I would love to have, and if you give it to me, all I ask in settling the debt that you have to my family is that you let me make the laws of this land. And the king says it's a deal. He says, I'm going to call it Pennsylvania. means Penn's Woods. And William Penn says, you can't call it that. I'm a Quaker. It'll sound like hubris and pride on my part. And the king says, what I've written, I've written. And so William Penn says, let it henceforth be known that this is named for my father and not for me. So you need to know that Pennsylvania is named for William Penn's father, Admiral Penn. But what that enabled him to do was to establish a society where the charter begins and ends that no person will ever be persecuted because of their religious convictions within his proprietary colony. Religious liberty is established. People said it wouldn't work. But when the Liberty Bell rang out 75 years later in 1776 from the 1701 Charter, Philadelphia had grown to be the second largest English-speaking city in the world. The only larger city was London itself, 3,000 miles away. It had grown because of the extraordinary success 
that religious liberty had had. As a result, the influence of that began to touch others. George Washington said, It's amazing how Philadelphia has grown. It seems like their commitments to religious liberty has blessed them. Thomas Jefferson saw that. James Madison saw it. Patrick Henry saw it. And as a result, little by little, the principle of having religious liberty as a foundational tenet of the American experiment began to be moved around in people's minds and arguments until it becomes part of the First Amendment. So what I want to do with that story behind you, as we watch now the stripping away of religious liberty, one of the great tenets of our Bill of Rights, of our American story, and now it seems like people are trying to take it away from us, not only on the world stage, but right here in America. We need to find out, is this a biblical idea? William Penn, Roger Williams, two ministers of the gospel. They are the ones that articulated the principle. But where do we find it clearly articulated? Why did William Penn name his city Philadelphia? So our first passage that we want to consider is found in Revelation chapter 3. And you remember in verse 7. Do you remember as the... uh, Seven letters of the risen Christ are given to the churches in Asia Minor. One of them is to the church in Philadelphia. As a child, I remember reading the book of Revelation, and I saw the letter to the church in Philadelphia, and I scratched my head and said, why did New York not get one? And it took me a while to realize that this Philadelphia is not the Philadelphia in the United States. There was an ancient city of Philadelphia in Asia Minor. So Philadelphia is an ancient name. Now, isn't it interesting? William Penn, the minister, found a name for his city where religious liberty would be established. And he named it from a city in the Bible. He consciously did that. Now, there's a great story for why... Philadelphia is named Philadelphia. If you know a little bit about dynastic succession in royalty, you know that one of the greatest dangers a king has for his throne is his brother, his younger brother. Why? If something happens to the king, guess who gets to be the king? It's him. He succeeds him to the throne. There happened to be a king by the name of Eumenes II, we'll say approximately about 200 years B.C., who had a younger brother that's name was something like Adetlos II. And he noted how his younger brother was absolutely loyal to him. He honored his older brother. He was the successor to the throne. And his older brother seemed to never die. He ruled for almost 36 years. And seeing the loyal love of his younger brother, he said, I'm going to build a city and name it for you. He didn't call it by his first name. He called it Philadelphia. Philadelphos. What are those two Greek words? Philos is the word that means love. We hear it in philosophy and philanthropy. Adelphos is the Greek word for brother. He called it brother love city. And he honored his younger brother. 
Now the younger brother actually got to rule for about 15 years. He actually got to the throne. But a city was named for him because of his brotherly love. So the first thing that we want to see is that when William Penn, the great minister, experimenter, and religious liberty, chose to establish his city where religious liberty, the freedom of conscience, would be practiced, he chose a place that would be named Brother Love. Today, Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love. If you live there, it's really the city of brotherly shove, especially when you're on the Schuylkill Expressway. But its history is glorious. Brothers love. Now, the next thing you need to realize is that when he named the city this, remember his theology, his defense of the religious liberty, the freedom of conscience was based on Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12. That's the golden rule. Now I want you to turn to that passage and let's take a look at it and think quickly about the principles that we find here. If you begin reading in this passage of Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12 leading to the golden rule, you hear very well-known verses. It says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts, good things to those who ask Him? Now typically we stop right there. And then we read verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And we make a major break. But I want you to notice that verse 12 begins with the word so. In the Greek it's the word therefore. It is an inference from everything that has gone before. This verse must be taken in its context. Consider then what the context of the golden rule is. The first premise that Jesus gives in his Sermon on the Mount is that we ought to be proactive in seeking to meet our needs and fulfilling our goals. You're to ask. When you ask, you come to a person. It's face to face. When you seek, you're looking for someone or something. You're trying to find it. When you knock, you you have an impersonal a relationship with someone, there's a barrier between you. And you're trying to get that door to be open so that you can get, get involved. Jesus is saying that I want you to be people that go out and engage others, seeking for what you need and what is desirous. Be proactive. And then he gives us in the next verse a promise. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Jesus says that when you are proactive, you will see results. People that you ask, doesn't say everyone you ask will say, I will give, but some will. And when you seek, you will find. You won't find every time, but you will find if you go looking. And if you knock, some doors will in fact open unto you. Be proactive as you seek your goals because there will be results. Now notice further, verse 9. Or 
Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Verse 10, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? He says this is true very obviously in a family situation. A father, when a son comes to him and says, Dad, I'm hungry. Can I have some bread? He doesn't say, here, eat this stone. When a son comes to a father and says, Dad, I'm starving. Can you give me something to eat? He doesn't give him a serpent. He gives him a fish. He feeds him. And Jesus makes this interesting point in his next verse. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more will God give good things to those that ask Him? Jesus is saying in the human realm, there is even within our fallenness, our sinfulness, the ability to give to those that we see as our family and provide their needs. God is far greater than that, but we're made in His image. Of course, asking and seeking and knocking ultimately is calling us to be people of prayer, to come to God. But He's showing us that this is part of our human experience. That we can, even with people that are imperfect, that are evil, fallen and broken, they can still do humanitarian good things. A father will feed his son when he's hungry. So that's the backdrop. There's an a fortiori, a movement from a fallen man to the far greater goodness of God, the Father, who gives to His sons. Now, that's the context of being proactive. Knowing that results come when we're proactive. Knowing that the giving of needs are met by people, even though they're imperfect because of our human relationship with one another as family. Reflecting the far greater goodness of God who made us. Who gives good things when we cry out to Him. We come to verse 12. So, because all these things are true, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying that we know what we would like. He says we sometimes see ourselves as children needing something from someone else that is a father. We want them to give us bread. We want them to give us a fish. But if that's what we want for ourselves, then that's how we should treat others. We should say, we will be the good fathers. And we will give them what they need. We will do to them what we ourselves need because we are reflecting our God. And the implication is we're reflecting the fact that as human beings we're part of a great family that God has created. We are evil. We are fallen. We are broken. But we all are made in the image of God. It's very clear that when we say God is our Father and we are His children, that's not true of all men when we talk about salvation. No, only those who believe in Christ have God as their Father and have salvation. But in creation... All men have God as their creative Father. Meaning as human beings, we all share 
a common existence in this world. We are all brothers and sisters in a family. The principle of the golden rule says because God has made us a family that knows how in spite of our fallenness, our evil, to give and meet needs. That's the way we ought to live like our God. We will seek to bless others. William Penn put this verse before his people and said, we must recognize the freedom we want for ourselves. We must give to others. William Penn had been put into jail by the Anglican church because he had a different religious perspective, a form of Christianity that was not traditional. When he built his city, he welcomed the Anglican church into his city and said, you're allowed to be here. I will not attack you. I will not harm you. You know, it's fascinating that in the history of the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, where the Philadelphia principle was practiced, we actually find that it was the only place in the entire English-speaking world at one point where Roman Catholics could freely exercise their conscience to have the Mass. I don't believe in the Mass. I think it's wrong. But you know, I think the King of England was wrong when he banished the right of Catholics to practice their theology in terms of their Eucharist. I disagree with the Catholic Church deeply. But that's their conscience. And in Philadelphia, their rights were protected because of this golden rule. The only place in the entire English-speaking world was in Philadelphia at Old St. Joseph's Church. Now, this principle then, as you think more deeply about it, it's fascinating that there's a few other points that we ought to keep in mind. If we understand what is being said about giving to others when they ask to meet their needs, because this is how we want to be treated, I want to apply another great insight from one of your earlier Boyce Lecture theologians by the name of Bruce Waltke. Uh, you know our good friend Mike Black has been lecturing on Dr. Waltke's uh, great commentary on Proverbs, wrestling with it as he teaches the Proverbs. I had the opportunity to, to meet Dr. Waltke uh, a few months ago and we were talking one-on-one -on -one and he was sharing his deep insight into the book of Proverbs. Very practical book, as you know. And I said, what do you think is one of the great principles you learned? And he said, this is one of the ones that I came away with. He said, I finally understood what the word righteousness really means. And what the word wicked really means. He said, righteousness is when you disadvantage yourself to advantage others. Wickedness is when you advantage yourself to disadvantage others. He said, it came absolutely clear that this is the heart of the Proverbs. And then he said he was convicted deeply for his sin. He said, coming from New York City and driving in the big city, he realized how wicked he was. He knew how to cut into any line to cut off the weight. He would shove himself in with his car. And he said, I'm disadvantaging everybody behind me. I'm a wicked man. You know, Dr. Waltke has a great way of putting things. But the principle of religious liberty is getting at that very point. Religious liberty is saying, I really don't agree with your theology. 
But you know what? I'm going to let you be who you are because this is a righteous thing. Now think a little more deeply. Some of you with your New Testament theology knowledge know that the word for love in the New Testament in its highest form is the word agape. Agape is the word of self-denial to give good to others. For God so loved the world, He agaped the world by giving His Son. Self-denial to bless others. This is the highest form of redemptive love. Agape. And so, as I was talking to Dr. Waltke, I said, wait a second. If righteousness is uh, properly understood as disadvantaging, disadvantaging yourself to bless another, isn't that the very same definition of agape love? He said, wow, I hadn't thought about that. Maybe you're right. Righteousness is love. And love is righteous. What does 1 Corinthians 13 tell us as it defines love? Love seeks to do good to its neighbor. It keeps no record of wrong. All those things it does that costs oneself to bless another. Remember, we read that great passage of 1 Corinthians 13 as a definition of love at weddings all the time, but it's really designed for churches that are squabbling. That's what the context it was given in. So it works for marriages where you're squabbling too, of course. But its intent is to show us how to get together. Love is proactive. It is seeking to do right toward those that are not perfect. And that's what the golden rule is all about. We are a family trying to care for one another. Now, let's review what we've done biblically here. First of all, we've seen that Philadelphia as a city has a history of of brother loving his older brother and the older brother honoring him. And it becomes the name of a city where there's a Christian church. Penn takes that and applies it to his city. Secondly, the theology of religious liberty he puts to work grows out of the passage where he's recognizing that we all ought to treat one another as family. Remember, a father gives to his son good gifts. We are to act like fathers. And sometimes we are sons that need to look to a father. This is the mutuality of care. But then what's really remarkable is that I want us to turn to our last passage. And that is in Romans chapter 12. Sometimes this section is called rules for the Christian life. In Romans chapter 12, we come to verses 9 and 10. It says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now that word where it says, love one another with brotherly affection. Do you know what the Greek word is for brotherly affection? Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Did you know that this word is not just the name of a city? But it is a Christian virtue that we are to practice. We are to treat each other as though we are brothers. And notice the context. Let love, let agape be unhypocritical. The etymology of the word hypocrite is remarkable. It's the word 
actor. A hypocrite, Hippocrates, in Greek, is someone who acts. I'm reminded of Sinclair Ferguson, the great uh, Scottish Presbyterian preacher, who said how much he enjoyed the story of Chariots of Fire and Eric Little. Do you remember the man who ran uh, so great that he got to the Olympics, but then the big day of the big meet was on Sunday, and he was a Sabbath keeper, and he said, I don't care when the meet is, I will not run if it violates my duties to my God. I will not miss a church service to run in the Olympics. That's quite an amazing position, and he actually gave up his run. Now, we know the story. He ran in another race and still won. But that story is amazing, and especially to a theologian like Sinclair Ferguson, who shares that deep Reformed Presbyterian theology. But I'll never forget him saying, my heart is so sad that the man who played that picture of that great Christian who was a great pioneer missionary to China and died on the mission field preaching the gospel, died of AIDS. This man was an actor. He played a role that was not who he was. Now, I'm not against acting, but where there ought not to be acting is in this area of agape love. Paul says, let our self-sacrificing giving for others not be an act we just put on. A mask like in the ancient Greek world, we put on a face that's not us. But it comes from our hearts. Let agape be not an act, but authentic. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Now, in the original where it says love one another, it actually uses the word philostorges. Philos, the same word of love, this kind of love in Philadelphia, and storges, a family love. You're to have a, an affectionate family love as you do your brotherly love. This is our Christian community of what we're supposed to be. We are not to pretend that we are ready to serve others, but we are to serve by God's grace so beautifully described by the George Whitfield Society in deed and word, faith and matter, material. We put our faith to work. These words then show us that religious liberty, if you will, in its proper application is seeking to be a brother to others, seeking to meet their needs as different as they may be, seeing them as someone that we're authentically caring for. Now, with that theological background, let's think about a little more what we are facing in our American context as we look at the loss of religious liberty. I'm thinking now of some of the challenges that are before us. One of our friends in the Bible study just gave me a, a kind of sad report from OU, right here close by in Oklahoma. It's written by a professor describing what's happening at this great school. He writes, in the fall of 2018, law professor Brian McCall was forced to resign from his position as associate dean for academic affairs at OU because of his conservative and religious beliefs. The persecution of Professor McCall was condemned by the Oklahoman who concluded in October 
There's zero evidence McCall imposed his views on others. He was targeted for being conservative and religiously devout. We are facing a time where people are continually seeing their faith becoming an issue, where there's an attempt to destroy them because of their beliefs. We hear about the Kurds, a religious group on the world stage that are being singled out because of their religious beliefs. We hear about the Boko Haram. I came from Nigeria where I was speaking at a pastor's conference about two or three years ago. And the day that I left was the day that all of those girls were taken by the Boko Haram. I'm in touch with a a good brother in the Lord by the name of Dr. Philip Totchen, a Ph.D. from Westminster, a theologian of the highest order, who has gone back to his homeland to teach. Because of his excellence, he has been elected to become the educator of his state in Nigeria, in Benoa State. We just received a letter, and he said, pray for us. We are marked. There is going to be potentially a slaughter of those that are Christians in our state. And I'm a leader. Please pray for my courage to be faithful. I connected with our State Department, tried to get some of the congressional people to be aware of what's happening. But people right now are facing this struggle. The largest church that was a house church in China that had been reaching people by the thousands, the pastor just disappeared about two months ago. He is now in confinement and he will likely spend the rest of his life in jail. What is his crime? Trying to be a biblical preacher in the great nation of China. Chairman Xi that we hear so much about, he has come into churches in that land and they have a picture of Jesus. He has it torn down. And he says, Jesus can do nothing for you. He says, put my picture up. I can take care of you. This is the vision of a secular government, whether it's communist or just humanistic. It says, get rid of Christianity. What I'm suggesting to you is that this great truth of doing unto others as you'd have them do unto you, by respecting their conscience, even when you don't agree with it, because that's what you do to brothers. You respect their diversity and you expect them to give it back to you. That's how you want to be treated. This great religious liberty principle is only possible in a Christian society. It will not survive when there is a worldview that seeks to establish its view at the cost of anything in terms of power. Uh, On the way over, we were discussing this. uh, Jeff mentioned, and I was planning to say it tonight, and I affirm it here. If you listen carefully in the last administration, our president... President Obama said, let us never forget the First Amendment gives us the freedom of worship. But our First Amendment does not give us the freedom of worship. It says, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. It's not just what we do behind the closed walls of our churches. But it's like Coach Kennedy saying, I just want to bow before the Lord and thank Him for this game. And they won't let Him do it. But that's the free exercise. It doesn't matter. You can't do this here. 
What we are watching is as the Christian common grace of the gospel is being stripped away from our culture, as the Christian voice is being silenced, as we are not engaging our culture the way that we could and should boldly, we are going to watch further and further the the demise of one of the greatest experiments in human liberty ever established in the world. And that is the American freedom of the free exercise of religion. We hear it right here at home. We see it abroad. And it comes down to this question. What will we do? How shall we respond? I think the first thing we need to do is to be grateful that we have a moment in time where we have a new administration that's prepared to respect our conscience. I want you to know I was not a supporter of Donald Trump at the beginning. I did say when I was involved in people asking the question, who are you going to vote for? I said, I'll vote for the last man standing in the Republican ticket, but I can't vote for Hillary Clinton. Why? Not because I hate Hillary Clinton, whether I like her or not. She's already said she's going to continue to enforce the principles of the current administration. That administration had required Westminster Seminary to provide abortion services uh, contrary to our conscience because we're not a church. And it said if we don't do that, they were going to fine us about $2 million a year for not doing what they demanded. And here I am, mild-mannered Peter Lilback, president of Westminster who loves everybody. I had to take my seminary to court to defend ourselves against our government. Do you know, we went all the way to the Supreme Court. We were part of that wonderful movement with the Hobby Lobby case. But when the decision was made, they said, the private religious conscience of individual ministries will not be decided by this case. This is only for-profit businesses. We were left high and dry. That meant we had to keep fighting. Thank God for judges that are willing to hear cases and Uh, attorneys that are willing to argue pro bono. We could not have afforded this case. It was far too expensive for us. But we had those that said, we're going to stand with you. And of course, you know what happened. It got to the Supreme Court, and finally when our case was heard, Justice Scalia passed away. Maybe one advocate, we said, might be bold enough to stand with our conscience. And it was divided four to four. And what's interesting, at that moment, there we were with the little sisters of the poor, a Roman Catholic group, and Westminster Seminary, a Reformed theological group that never gets along theologically with Roman Catholics, but we live together. We're there side by side at the Supreme Court. And you know what? We were told by our attorneys, somebody must have been praying for us and for you. Because... The court analyzed the case and they said, we cannot decide this case. And they did something they've never done in the history. They sent it back to the parties that were contesting and said, you tell us what to do and we will do it. That's never happened. That happened in our case. And so as a result, 
We went back and there's this wrangling. How do we work together? Respecting our conscience, not taking away the government's right, but we have the right to, to free exercise of religion. Our convictions and our conscience should be protected. And when the administration that we now have came along, they said, we're going to take away all these government mandates. And we basically won our case. And this is hard to believe. Do you know what? We received a $160,000 check from the government for our legal expenses. Isn't that great? We, we're a nonprofit. We don't get any money from the government. But they admitted they were wrong. But now that actually went to our attorneys, but they said, we don't want to keep it. We'll give it to you. And so we delighted at that moment that we were, in fact, protected. Now, when I first heard that President Trump, and this is not a pro-Trump speech, I'm just telling you facts, because it has an implication. When I first heard that he was running for office, I was actually in a Jeep in Kruger National Park in South Africa. My uh, smartphone, we went up on top of a hill, and suddenly I had power. You know, the bars came up, and so I'm thumbing it through. And I begin to look, and I finally get to the point to read some of the messages. And there's a message. I couldn't believe it. It says, Donald Trump is running for president and he's a Presbyterian. I said, he's clearly not my kind of Presbyterian. Uh, we, our Presbyterians don't run, run gambling joints and they're not known for being womanizers. That's not the PCA, my tradition. I, that got my attention. I said, oh, he's a Presbyterian. I never heard that. But then I read it and this is what it said. I am going to be the greatest defender of religious liberty of any president in American history. Now that got my attention because I've been watching all of these things. I have chaplains who are telling me they're, they're beginning to force us to not even name the name of Jesus when we pray. I hear all these things going and I say, he's going to defend us? Well, yes, you know what? He has been raised up at this moment in time apparently to do it. I had the opportunity to lead a tour of the, uh, the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., uh, David Barton is famous for that tour, but he had to be out of the country, and I was his uh, substitute. So I was the way down the line. They had to find somebody, so I got stuck in the job. A wonderful opportunity. And so that meant I got to go to the prayer breakfast the next morning. And as President Trump got up to speak, he said this, I will never let you down. And they said, isn't it really wonderful that the second lady of the United States... Mrs. Pence, who's here today, is teaching at a Christian school. Isn't that marvelous? The whole place erupted. You know, they were thrilled that they're recognizing she had a right and she had been shamed publicly. Now, this is a moment where we're in the eye of the storm. Let us not be surprised that in two years or six years, whatever the Lord determines, all of the forces of hostility are going to break out against us again. Westminster already had begun to say, if we have a Hillary Clinton presidency and she appoints one or two justices to the court and a religious liberty case comes up and they reinterpret the law, we may not be able to get international visas for students to study with us because we believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. We may not be able to have our students go on to do graduate work. They'll say, you can't be accredited unless you support uh, this particular view. 
LGBTQ principles in your student government and life. We are facing very, very serious times. We have a moment of respite perhaps, but it's not going away. What do we do? Number one, let us not abandon religious liberty. Let us continue to respect the conscience of others because the Lord tells us to treat others as we wish to be treated. But let us also recognize that if we do not speak, we are acquiescing to the assaults that are coming against the great legacy and heritage that has been bequeathed to us. As for me and my institution and the groups that I lead, I am prepared to go to the catacombs, but I'm not doing it voluntarily. There have been far too many who've stood boldly to speak for our liberties. What will we do? What will we do now? How will we defend these rights? Remember these truths that religious liberty was an experiment that was done for the first time in America and it is our legacy and birthright to preserve. It will be lost under our watch. Every one of us need to do something. So for some practical suggestions as we wrap up and we'll open up for some questions. Number one, it has always been our duty to pray for our government leaders. Let us add to our prayer list, Father, if it would be your mercy, help us to be agents of protecting the conscience of others as we ask that our conscience might be preserved. Prayer is the tool of God to accomplish His will. Secondly, are you prepared to recognize the greatest way to change this is by sharing the gospel? The greatest way to change a person's values is by bringing them to a faith in Jesus Christ. Are we committed to overt, open, clear evangelism? If we are to love our neighbor, aren't you glad that someone told you about Jesus and brought you the gospel? Well, to love your neighbor, even as you've loved yourself, you're glad someone told you about Jesus. We need to begin to be active we need to say, you need to know who Jesus is. Churches need to reevaluate what is our evangelism program. There's no greater way to change a perspective than people discovering the teaching of Jesus that made religious liberty possible in the first place. Yes, Jesus also said, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. If a light is hidden under its bushel basket, under a bushel basket, darkness remains. If salt is not kept in its salty state, it is thrown out and trampled underfoot. Is there ever a word that you speak, an act that you take, a vote that you cast, an article that you write, an educational lesson that you teach, an influence that you bring, a conference that you attend, someone that you influence and say, this is a critical issue in our day and I will do something to make a difference. It is the great gift of the gospel to the public at large. And therefore, it ought to be gospel people more than any others that seek to defend it and share it. I conclude with this and we'll open it up for questions. We know the great uh, 
conservative presidency of Ronald Reagan has been considered time and again. Some love his work, some hate his work. But he said something that I think is very appropriate. He used to say something like this. If not this, then what? If not me, then who? If not now, then when? I'm asking you that question tonight. Religious liberty flows right out of our Christian ethic. It flows out of the golden rule of Jesus. It is reflected in the very name of one of the cities that Jesus wrote a letter to. And it is the story of this culture shaped by our forefathers and foremothers that understood Christian values. What will we do? Let's do something. Let me pray and we'll open it up for questions. Father, thank you for this opportunity to consider the looming danger, the crisis that's before us, our own potential lack of energy to do things, the lack of understanding and wisdom that we often struggle with. Would you please help us to be bold and find our way to make a difference? And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, what questions might you have tonight? Stand up and I'll repeat the question. Yes, sir. What was your reference to Philistasia? Love of family? What was your, what was your reference there? Okay. Uh, what was my reference to love of family? It's phil, philostorgos is the word. for. Yeah, if you go back into Romans 12, uh, 9 and 10, and you get a look at the Greek words there, it uses the word agape, Philadelphia, Philadelphia and Philosturge, uh, or Philosturgantes, I think it's the participle form. But what it means is agape, self-denying love, brotherly love, and then familial family love. All of those come together in our Christian duty, and they become the basis, ultimately, as we apply it more broadly uh, to our culture and religious liberty. That would be Romans 12, uh, 9 and 10. Okay. Someone else? Yes, sir. Jeff. Yeah, I know um, places like Amnesty International take on uh, human rights, and we don't agree with them always. But uh, I was taught in college that this is where this comes from, you know, uh, the Enlightenment. But the more you study human rights, you realize, no, this actually goes back to Christianity as well. Can you talk about that for a moment? Yes, I think um, the, the first thing that we need to recognize is that the, is that the American experiment that we have uh, begins with our Declaration of Independence. And the Declaration of Independence is not just a theistic statement, it is a Christian theistic statement, in my humble opinion. And I'll try to give it to you this way. Think about the four references to deity that we find there. First of all, it says we're endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So it says... We are endowed by our Creator with certain... What is that? That's the image of God. The image of God is the foundation of our rights. Our rights do not come from the government. And the first of them is life. There's nothing more biblical and Christian than life itself. Choose life, not death. Uh, I am the, the uh, resurrection and the life. I give you eternal life. Life is the, a foundational principle. It talks next about... The laws of nature and of nature's God. That means that we not only recognize, if you will, the idea of the character 
of uh, our being in the image of God, but we have laws that come from God. Now we're talking about the moral law that's been bequeathed to us from God Himself. These are the Ten Commandments. That's why that law ended up on the courthouses all across America for, for a century and a half. And then it says, for the rectitude of our intentions, we appealed to the supreme judge of the world. Uh, This is where the idea of the Christian principle becomes very clear because it says, we are going to give an account for what we've done to the supreme judge. And if you'd asked any of those uh, signers in that day, who's the supreme judge of the world? They would say, oh, of course, that's Jesus Christ. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats when he judges the nations. Uh, They said, all judgment is given to the Son so that you might honor the Son even as you honor the Father. He is going to be the one who comes to judge. This is a Christian theological principle. There is judgment. And then finally, at the very end, it says, and for the defense of this declaration, with a firm reliance on divine providence, we mutually pledge to one another our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And so it ends with the, the idea of providence, a mutual word. You take those four references... And you can see that why is it that we care for refugees or day-to-day people? Because they're made in the image of God. Because God has given us a law, His law. We're going to be given, have to give an account for what we've done. And we can do this because God Himself is giving us strength to do it. This is the story of the American government as we find rights and as we consider others. And so as the Constitution is written and then amended with the Bill of Rights, This is the implementation of that worldview. And I would say that uh, the idea of caring for uh, the needs of people as refugees and otherwise uh, reflect that biblical worldview. And many of our founders recognized that they themselves were refugees. Uh, We think of uh, some of the... Paul Revere was a Huguenot that fled for his life to to Boston. Alexander Hamilton was from a Huguenot descent. They were, they were persecuted. The entire New England colony came here to get away from, from the king. So they were refugees. They were seeking asylum. And uh, that idea then is broadened more fully. I think one last example, George Washington writes a remarkable letter uh, to the Jewish uh, synagogue. I think it's uh, in Savannah. I may have the wrong city, but it's one of the early Jewish synagogues. And he basically said, I, I am praying that every man will be able to sit under his vine and fig tree and there'll be none to make them afraid. Which, by the way, was Washington's favorite Bible verse. He uses it 30 times. And he takes that verse and he says, I'm applying it to you as Jewish people who have been persecuted, looking for asylum. I want you to know that in America you're going to be able to sit under your vine and fig tree and here none will make you afraid. This was a post-millennial vision for many at that point. They were dreaming of a peaceable kingdom that might come. So even our founders recognized this image of, of asylum. When William Penn set up Philadelphia, he went to the persecuted peoples of Europe and said, come here, here you will have a, a place of refuge. So Christianity has its hands all over the idea of of international rights, protecting people who are persecuted, uh, and providing them shelter. So very much a Christian expression. Okay, time for a couple more questions. Anyone else? Yes. I like what you said about the Declaration of Independence and the references to God. Uh, 
lot of people say, well, if the framers believed in God so much, why didn't they mention in the Constitution? But it, it actually, the Constitution is dated in the year of our Lord, 1787. So I think the framers acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord. Okay, well, the, the comment is, is that the Constitution is often viewed as a godless constitution, but one of the direct responses to that is that, have you ever considered its dating in the year of our Lord, 1787? Uh, they made a point to put the first person plural possessive pronoun in the way they signed it. This is our Lord. They, they didn't say, this is the first year of the American Empire. No, they put themselves in light of a far greater kingdom that has continued to be in history and identified with the great Judeo-Christian tradition. So it was very much uh, a conscious act. In fact, uh, many of the great principles of the Constitution reflect uh, Christian values. Probably the greatest one is its absolute honest assessment of human nature. Uh, why is there so many checks and balances? Because you can't trust people with power. If you go into the minutes of uh, the Constitutional Convention kept by James Madison, there's this great scene uh, where they're debating the question of how will we represent the various states in, in the government. And the bigger states actually say, I think we have uh, more people, we ought to have more votes. And a representative of the little state says, we would never do that, you would always outvote us. And the big state says, no, don't worry, we'll take good care of you. And you know, yeah, and you know what the little state said? We don't trust you. We'd rather be ruled by a despot, by a tyrant, than by a big state that can outvote us and not care for us. So, in other words, they stood strong on their rights to have a, an equal voice because they believed in, and they actually use this phrase in their minutes, because we believe in political depravity. Men are fallen, and therefore power has to be checked by power because we will abuse it for ourselves. Good men will abuse it. We need to have it. In fact, I'll quote, this is a rather intricate quote from uh, George Washington in his letter that he was preparing for Congress as the newly elected president. He says this, The blessed religion revealed in the Word of God will remain an eternal monument to show what human beings can do in their depravity to corrupt the best of institutions. He goes on to say, our Constitution is just a mound of parchment, a wall of words, and a power-hungry leadership aided and abetted by a lazy electorate will be able to leap over it and do what they will. Now that sounds like the evening news, doesn't it? Washington said this Constitution, this Republican form of government is an experiment and will only work if people are willing to be involved and do their part to check the greater government. So I'd like to say that the Constitution's greatest witness to Christianity is it does not have an Enlightenment view of man. The Enlightenment man says man is good. Let's use our reason. We'll make the world wonderful. It says we can't trust you with power because men are sinful. All of us, all of us are sinful. And therefore we need to have checks and balances on power. Okay. It is in the year of our Lord, but there's much more. In fact, the president's allowed to take Sunday off every week. When he, he, Sunday accepted. Whenever there's a law, has 10 days, Sunday accepted. He gets, the Sabbath is protected for the president because it's, it recognizes the Christian reality. Okay, maybe one or two last questions. Yes, sir. I was wondering what 
states that's kind of making a movement? There, I think there's 13 states that are involved now. What would you think about Okay. Uh, the convention of the states idea, what is it a good or bad idea? And perhaps there's some 13 states who are ready to do it. Uh, I don't know what the final number, I've never studied with enough care. Do you know what the number is that have to be gotten? Is it 34? Okay, so they're maybe a little over a third of the way there. Whether it's achievable or not, it's going to be an uphill climb. Uh, to do it is a, a fascinating idea. It's constitutional. It's never been done since the Constitution's in place. The danger, of course, is what happens when you open up a, a discussion. You might have great results. You might not have such good results. So sometimes people say, the danger you have right now is better than the danger you don't know. Okay, I, I changed the word danger from an, a supernatural being here. Uh, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know, right? So the point is, it's possibly a great thing. I'm not opposed to it, but we, I would say we need to be ready. That's not going to be an easy time. There'll be, there'll be a lot of forces at work, even as there are a lot of forces right now to try to change the constitutional uh, understandings at every point th that is possible. Okay, last question. Yes, sir. All right, two, two last hands, and we'll stop with these. Go ahead. Are we in a position, when we talk about uh, protecting the conscience of others, but are we in a position to take that stand because of the relatively moderated religious practices that we see in America? For instance, if we had a practice of worshiping Moloch, would we say that we should protect the conscience of those who practice that? Okay, so the question is, how broadly does religious liberty extend in terms of conscience, uh, given the uh, decline of, let's say, classic biblical religion and, us and other, let's say, pagan religions, and use the example of the Old Testament worship of Moloch? Uh, first of all, I, I think religious liberty has always been understood as uh, something that we will not prescribe the extent of it is provided you are not attacking or harming another person's rights. The problem of Moloch worship is that you burn infants in the fire. And I think all of us, even now, although we're trying to find a way for infanticide to be accepted in certain cases, would say you can't do that because you're taking the life of another person who has not consented to this act. It's wrong. Religious liberty does not allow you to do whatever you want. It allows you to follow and exercise your conscience as long as you respect the rights of others who disagree with you. Okay, so one of my great complaints in our uh, dealing with the, the Muslim tradition, I think Muslims should be allowed to have their mosque, they should be allowed to worship, but I have been deeply concerned for many years is that we bring people into our country who have said, but we will not respect the rights of others. We want the right to, quote, evangelize, but we do not want to be evangelized. I said, we should never let people to come in until they're willing to say, this is the way the system works. That your conscience is protected, your free exercise, and so is the rights of others. You cannot restrict the right of a Christian to tell others about Christ. And you're basically saying, that's okay. And I say, no, it's not. And that's been part of the foolishness, I think, of much of, of what's happened about how we've dealt with religion. So, uh, let's take an example uh, of a classic uh, Mesoamerican religion. Uh, you, you find uh, an Aztec who says, the way I worship God is I need to give to God a beating heart. So, Mike, I need to do an act of worship. Will you please come up here? 
You know, I'm, and you can't do that. It's called murder. No, it's worship. No, it's not. It's not worship. Not in the American context. We've defined it as clearly, and this is the point. It's defined by the golden rule. Where does the golden rule come from? It comes from Jesus. That's the point. Without Jesus' message, we don't have the proper restraints. We begin to, to lose the sight. There's this mutuality that must be at work. And so I think, yes, you can respect the rights of even religions you think are unbiblical, that are wrong, provided they're within the boundaries of respecting their neighbors, including the right to have people disagree, to, to say, I'm going to tell you why I think it's wrong. They have the right to say, I think this is why you're wrong. That's called America. It's called free speech. It goes right along with the First Amendment religious exercise clause. And we should celebrate all those things. Okay, so that's the way I would respond at that point. Okay, one last question. Way in the back, I saw a hand go up. This is our last one. Um, how about we defend our religious liberties in our current uh, public school systems? Okay, would you repeat that one more time? How about we defend our religious liberties in our current public school systems? Okay. How do we defend our religious liberties in our current public school system? Uh, I think, first of all, we need to recognize that one of the uh, great dangers of having a Department of Education is the power to establish a perspective that is the official government view on everything that our children will learn. That's why they wanted it to have a Department of Education. Because it's the ability to begin to shape a culture in a way that the leaders want it to be. The classic position was education belongs to the family for the common good. We all are to train our, our families to serve others and train them in values that we believe are appropriate. The government is trying to take that away. And so we know in some countries like Germany... Homeschooling is absolutely outlawed. You will go to jail for doing homeschooling. Isn't that amazing? That's already in place in a Western country. All right, so the bottom line that I would say is we need to recognize the opposition to classic Christian thinking that's in the secular uh, uh, arena, which means as we go into the public schools, we generally are going to have to expect opposition to Christian values. We know that there's sleight of hand going on constantly. Things that are being taught that parents don't know about. They're being sidelined. So how do we protect our rights? It's like anything else. We have to get involved. We have, if we have children in the public school, we better be part of the public education process. We need to be on the school boards. We need to go to parent-teachers meetings. We need to be open classes and discussions when they're being raised. And we need to realize they generally, although we hope there's great exceptions, we need to recognize that often there is a desire to minimize the Christian influence. And then further, as difficult as this, but I think it's right, uh, we need to be prepared to exercise our legal recourse. And there are a number of groups that will especially delight in helping school cases to continue to be defended pro bono because they recognize the courts have been used to bludgeon humble Christian families into silence. And it's not an easy thing, but I think we have to be prepared. We're going to be in a battle zone. 
And so the public schools, how do we exercise our rights? We have to defend them. We have to exercise them. We need to anticipate that we are in, in fact, a resistance. When we go to the schools, it's no longer the Ozzie and Harriet age. Everybody is happy and Jesus is kind of okay. Now, this is now a Marxist, secularist, atheistic worldview that takes different forms that will do all that it can, whenever it can, to resist and silence the Christian witness and voice. And we need to be prepared to take that on in each of our callings. We all can't do that, but somebody needs to do it. And uh, what can I say? We may not win every battle. We may not win any of our battles. But I guarantee you, if we don't show up, we will lose every battle. And so it's not the point to be contentious. The point is to speak the truth in love, to be salt and light. Salt stops decay. Light dispels darkness. Truth, when it's given in love, is not ugly. It's actually beautiful. And that's our calling. We are the witnesses for Christ to engage the culture. Okay, thank you for listening. May God bless us with more of the Philadelphia principle that ultimately comes from the golden rule of Jesus. And we thank God for our legacy. Thank you. Beloved, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. God bless you. Thanks for coming. Amen.